Thirsty? You've come to the right place to wet your whistle. It's the Liquid Lifestyle with Ryan McGarrian, a full hour of liquid refreshment. Now, here's Ryan. All right, what's cracking, my thirsty listener? So, if the sound of my voice is flowing into your ears like a round and refreshing uh, Pisco Sour, you know that you're riding the earth with me here at the Liquid Lifestyle on the Radio Northwest Network. And as always, I am your host and on-air bartender, Ryan McGarrian. And if you're joining us for the very first time, this little show of mine is generally dedicated to all things liquid and delicious, uh, along with uh, occasional forays into grub and other areas of pop culture that I think uh, might be relevant to the lifestyle of today's passionate and conscientious imbiber. Be them right here in the city of roses, hops, and hipsters, or as you might have experienced in past episodes, parts far, far beyond. All right, so today the mobile studio is once again parked inside my pizza and cocktail drinking oasis, and that, of course, is Oven and Shaker here in Portland's Pearl District. And uh, today I'm super stoked to ride shotgun with one of Portland's top bartenders who has recently moved on to become a burgeoning expert in both Pisco, which you'll learn about today, and tequila, uh, and now resides in uh, at least half the year in Cusco, Peru. We should all be so lucky. And the other half in Oaxaca, Mexico. And uh, and that's my friend Cami Kenna. Cami, uh, how heavens are you today? Amazing. Thank you. It's nice to be in Portland. I know it. I know it. And uh, you're back in town during uh, the time when the weather begins to change, uh, and you're coming from some, uh, you're coming from from some sunny places. Um, how you feeling about this change in weather? Um, I've been freezing to death, but uh, fortunately, I brought my alpaca sweaters with me to stay warm. Um, today's a sunny day, so it's lovely. So true, but uh, I tell you what, one of the reasons I wanted to get Cami on the show uh, was that you know it's so cool to see that bartenders are just moving into all kinds of different spaces within the beverage industry to find careers and certainly there's nothing wrong with like finding a career behind the bar keep you fit keep you burning calories but uh, there's other opportunities and I think it's some of these other opportunities that are drawing so much talent and so much intelligence uh, into our industry and uh, Cammy's a great example of that uh, specifically with uh, your you're now moving into uh, you know becoming an expert and again both Pisco and tequila but but uh, before we start talking about uh, where you're at today, um, you know, I think it's just really important to lay down a really cool foundation of uh, where you started in this industry and even further back, where are you from? Well, I am from Spokane, Washington. Um, I moved to Portland here um, right when I turned 18. Um, and it was when I turned 21, like a week after 21, I started um, bartending at McMinniman's Edgefield. Um, I walked into the bar and I just walked to the bar manager and I was like, I want to work here. And he kind of laughed at me and was like, uh, you got to start at the bottom, sweetheart. <laughs> and so I worked in catering at um, Edgefield for several years until I moved into the small bars department there. Um, I started working at Brazen Bean where I learned kind of like my chops behind the bar with no POS system, incredibly busy happy hour, teeny tiny well, and just like making things happen and, and the Brazen Bean is literally in a house. Um, and we kind of had a house bar. And I just to jump in right there, uh, the Brazen Bean is really kind of a legendary kind of uh, early adopter of what I guess we'd call craft cocktails. Uh, sadly, no longer in that space. It's now called the Pope House where you can drink 
a cornucopia of different whiskeys from around the world. But man, I remember I used to live by the Brazen Bean and uh, watching what Houston and Jeff were doing. Was Houston uh, running the place when you were there? Yeah, they both were. Uh huh. And actually, Jeff is my uncle. So I spent uh, kind of my teen years popping in when it was just a coffee shop and. I remember helping uh, paint the bar on kind of their opening night um, when I was 13. So it's kind of like, a, it was always like a home here in Portland. So when I got to start working there, when it was a busy cocktail bar, I felt like on top of the world. Man, it was the first time. Man, they were so far ahead of the curve. I mean, just putting cucumbers in drinks back then was a huge deal in like the mid-90s. And, uh, and you know what else they had? They had that really life-changing white chocolate martini. Remember that thing? Totally. The Tijuana Speedball. Oh, that too. Our friend, oh, I think Felicia yeah. is the one who came up with that. They were, they were, uh, you guys were making that. Box, right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brazen Bean was such a cool uh, establishment. And uh, Jeff, your uncle went on to open chapel up in Seattle, which was, I remember when that opened up, it was like in an old mortuary up on Capitol Hill. And that was a revelation for Seattle to be sure. Man, that was such a good room. He has, he has great taste. Did he move on to get into fitness or where's he at now? He went fitness, but now he's working back in the industry. He's doing high-end catering in Seattle and actually um, lives in Edgewood, just outside of Seattle. I was just there on Saturday um, helping him throw a 50th birthday party for a friend. So it was kind of like family catering party. Um, So they host um, events at their house there in Edgewood. It's amazing. Man, was the weather any better up in Seattle? (laughs) No. Not at all, right? (laughs) No, it was super, even more rainy. So you're doing the brazen bean. What's the next? Uh, what you, you, what's your next step as you're moving uh, in uh, throughout the industry? Geez, after brazen bean, I felt like I could kind of work kind of more diverse cocktail menus. So, oh my gosh. I don't even remember. Um, well, I know you've worked, at, I mean, just to throw Circa some things 30. out. Yeah, Circa 33, uh, and uh, I know you worked at church, and you and I think Bunk Bar you mentioned. Yep. What were some, I mean, just those three right there, they're all doing uh, really pretty progressive cocktails. You know, what was, uh, what, what was uh, of those three places, did you have a, any particular epiphanies about mixing drinks, or where do you think you really honed your own style of mixing? I would say it's still evolving. <laughs> um, but I would say church. Um, I was given um, kind of control over the cocktail menu, and I really just had a blast playing around with anything that I wanted to and drawing on all those past experiences, especially with the brazen bean because there was all sorts of lavender syrups and fun infusions. And so using those kind of in a a more modern kind of um, way at church, um, they really allowed me to do that. However, um, I think that I briefly worked at Toro Bravo and my training behind the bar there was incredible. It, it like got me into kind of form essentially. And then in conjunction with um, kind of like a past of, of creativity, but also working at McMinimins gave me like very strict kind of um, multitasking training and, and preparation in really busy bars. So it was kind of, you know, like um, just all of the experiences have definitely brought me where I am today. I'm actually bartending at a bar in Oaxaca also, and so I get to... As you do. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I'm, I really want to bartend. So I'm working at a mezcaleria there, 
and we're actually I'm going to be consulting on a cocktail menu and helping out with that. So so it's just good. Constantly moving. So going. exciting. Yeah. Uh, specifically to Toro Brava. Ever, so this is like the third episode in a row we've been talking about uh, Chef John's empire of deliciousness. And uh, last week we uh, talked with uh, Jamal, and uh, he has such a cool story, and he has such a great palate. Did you get to work with Jamal over there? No. Oh, well, I'm sure you got to work with somebody really good. What was it about the training at Toro Bravo that you found especially enlightening? Um, the very kind of um, in-depth sherry training really like brought sherry into my repertoire. And then right at opening, we were slammed at the bar. So it, it made me need to kind of like figure out in that small bar how to get everyone served quickly, which then led me into learning about batching drinks in church. So it was all, it's all just kind of like gone. A lot of well-rounded learning for you. You you just kind of hit all the marks. Sounds like you can almost write a book already. Yes. Maybe you should do (laughs) that while you're you're sitting on the beach there uh, in Oaxaca (laughs) or or in Cusco. But once again, we're chatting with Portland bartender Cami Kenna, and uh, we're going to move into a conversation about Pisco and tequila because she has taken her talent from behind the bar to uh, to the south of us and to, to growing as an expert uh, and communicator on those styles of spirits. So uh, what was your last bartending gig in Portland? Was that church? Yes. Okay, church. And for those who don't know church bar, it's out on Sandy, right? Yep, 26th and Sandy in Northeast. Yeah, and I remember when it first opened, I was just like, man, this is like in the middle of nowhere, but you approach it on a Friday night or a Saturday, and there's a line out the door, and, uh, you know, it reminds me of some of my friends John's bars, uh, the Lightning Bar Collective, just this perfect balance of like a party, you know, local rusticity, great food, just just outstanding. So if you haven't been there, highly recommended. But folks, that's the end of the first round. We'll be right back with Cami in just a moment. And welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. Hope you are braving the uh, the cold here in this uh, early part of a uh, Oregon December winter. And uh, once again, we're chatting with Cami Kenna, uh, a Portland bartender with a ton of experience who made a jump into uh, a burgeoning expertise uh, within the worlds of Pisco and tequila. And if you missed the first round, you know, I tell you what, I learned so much about her during the first round. Uh, you know, I, very rarely do you see a bartender with such a, like, wide variety of, uh, of of experiences within the bar industry uh, in such a short period of time, and it seems like it served her super well. Again, she worked over at McMiniman's Edgefield, and then uh, with uh, John and his team at Toro Bravo, also at Circa 33, a really killer cocktail bar over on Belmont, and uh, was the bar manager over at Church, which is, it's just such a sweet bar in this kind of like intermittent, this location that just I just didn't think really had any legs, but they proved me wrong to be sure, and uh, I always uh, enjoy a trip over there, but uh, I want to start to move, uh, the majority of our conversation, I really want to move us towards you know, you being a bartender, but realizing you wanted to kind of take a different route within uh, the beverage uh, professional sphere and uh, and become an expert on specifically Pisco and, and Mezcal. When did you start to begin to kind of plot this, this, this departure from the being behind the bar once again and becoming an expert and professional in those specific spaces? Well, I feel incredibly lucky. Um, 
Aside from my love of everything bar, um, I am obsessed with Latin America. I have a degree from PSU um, in Spanish. Um, so I have always kind of looked for a way to combine the two. So whenever I could um, travel to Latin America, um, specifically, well, not even specifically, wherever I went, I always wanted to try the local things and kind of learn um, from what they're doing there. Um, I had been to Oaxaca in the past. I've been there a few times and and learning about mezcal there and then bringing that to um, behind the bar when I'm bartending here um, always meant a lot to me because I think that personal experience in selling is a great selling point. Um, so that was pretty easy and it's always a focus on Kind of, it always has been a focus on Latin America and Latin American spirit. So it was a really easy crossover. So you know, taking a, you know, learning that at PSU. What, do you have any Latin blood in you? I mean, is there is there some deeper connection I don't know about? No, but I think that in my second life I was definitely a Latina, and also um, most recently, um, well, in Peru and Mexico, people have asked if I'm Peruvian or Mexican, and it is like the day when that happens I celebrate because it's amazing it's a huge compliment <laughs> it's like you're absolutely adopted into those cultures that's yeah. so cool so you have this particular passion for not only uh, the Latin cultures but these specific spirit categories which I think are really both very intellectualized and very specific and very exciting I mean the profile of Pisco I mean that that florality and, and there's really nothing like um, Pisco and, and how it works in drinks and of course Mezcal is the darling of the modern craft cocktail era mm -hmm. with its you know varying kind of uh, uh, degrees of smoke and and uh, and just palatial craziness and uh, so when did uh, so tell me about this cocktail competition that that you got involved with that kind of maybe was the door opener for your move to Peru mm -hmm. definitely so two years ago Venom uh, put on a um, cocktail competition and it was a really fun competition but it was also incredibly intense um, eight bars went um, head-to-head -head in the competition so we started um, doing one a month the first Monday of every month and two bars with two-man teams would go head-to-head -head. Um, and Sam my partner and I did the very first one and it was really fun and and I don't I wouldn't say there's not anything that I don't take seriously but it wasn't I I had no idea that the re the end result would put me where I am right now. Um, so we had a good time with it, and we ended up winning. We advanced into a semifinal round, um, and that one we actually used Pisco. And uh, Lizzie Asher, who's uh, the, one of the sisters that own Machu Pisco, was a judge, and... I don't know, just really like connected with her. She was really fun and it was during the competition. She was a judge and just, you know, um, serving her essentially and, and meeting her. And it was kind of through that connection that um, we had with her that they proposed um, a trip to um, Peru to their distillery for the winners of the competition, which they didn't give until two weeks before the very final competition. So. Um, two weeks before, essentially, the the very the final head-to-head -head against Church, it was Church versus Imperial, 
and um, that's some talent there. Is you yeah. and uh, is it Sam? You said was mm-hmm. with, and then was with Brandon over there and Brandon Tony and Tony. Yeah, yeah. So we went head to head with them. It was very close, and we won. I just think that my desire to be in Latin America just carried the day. Me. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was amazing, and it was an amazing day because I knew it would change my life forever. So, and it did, and so that's why I'm sitting here. So that competition is, like, really special to me, and when I think back on it, it all feels kind of like a dream, but it happened. It's a waking dream, right? Yeah, absolutely. And with that, I decided that I would sell everything I own and just move to Peru. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you, exactly. (laughs) Um, So... Yeah, I spent a month in Lima, and it was there that I met other Pisco makers. I met the the guys from Encanto, um, and then with Pisco Lojia, um, which I'm a partner with today. So kind of that competition is really what it started everything, but I swear to you that I would get off of work and maybe like kind of daydream at home and kind of like imagine it all. Um, while I was drinking wine in my bed um, <laughs> and kind of walking through those things that I, I couldn't have jumped up better to my, myself um, has been like a really kind of like um, cathartic experience. So, so cool. Uh, once again, we're chatting with Cami Kenna, uh, former Portland bartender uh, uh, who now works uh, in both the Pisco and Mezcal spaces uh, in Peru and Oaxaca, respectively. And uh, tell me, you know, I've, Peru's at the very tip top of my list. You land in Lima. What's Lima like? I just see, I just have this envisionment of one of the best cities on the planet. Am I right? Lima is both one of the best cities and one of the worst cities. Got to jump in real quick. That's the end of the second round. This is Flying Folks. We'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. Where we're chatting with Cami Kenna from Pisco Lojia, former Portland bartender who now uh, is working on becoming a world expert on both Pisco and Mezcal. And at the end of the second round, we were I uh, inquired as to the awesomeness of Lima, Peru. So let's jump right back in there. Tell me about Lima. You, you land there, and then uh, and you said you uh, that's where you kind of get became connected with a lot of the Pisco produ- producers. Is it as dope a place as I imagine? Definitely. There's parts that are incredible, and there's parts that are slightly terrifying. Um, so it's a city of contrast, for sure. And you can see that kind of just in the landscape alone because you're on the coast, and then also it's desert. Um, but yeah, it's, it houses some of the best restaurants in the world. There's incredible, um, there's an incredible, uh, cocktail scene there. There's really amazing bartenders. Um, but yeah, it really is all about the food. That is literally the best thing about Lima, which isn't that unlike Portland being in a food paradise, Lima is as well. And you can get food that will blow your mind in markets all the way up to a place like Central, like the fourth best restaurant in the world. So... Right, and what is the general um, cuisine, though? Is, isn't it kind of a mashup? Of, isn't there, is there a lot of Japanese influence there? Definitely, yeah. Japanese, Chinese. Um, there was a point in Peru's history where a lot of Japanese people came over, um, and so there's a whole cuisine that's born from that. It's called Nikai, 
Um, I probably maybe pronounced that wrong, um, but uh, it's basically uh, ceviche and sushi had a baby, and it's mind-blowing. It's really delicious. It sounds delicious. It sounds clean. It sounds mm-hmm. free from any ill-filling effects the next day. Uh, man, I just I've, it's funny. Peru has been on my mind. So you're actually... Uh, you are actually located in Cusco. Where's yep. Cusco in relation to Lima? So Cusco is also in the south of the country. It's closer to the uh, Bolivian border, but it's not only east of Lima and south. It's super high up. So we are at um, where I live. We're at 2,800 meters, which is 9,000 feet. Um, and then Cusco, the city, is up around 3,600 meters, I think. So it's going high up into the Andes to get up to it. On a map, they don't look far away, but it's literally a 24-hour bus ride to get there. An hour flight, but it's, it's far um, up. Is the thing with sounds like it sounds like it uh so tell me about your gig in the in the world of pisco uh, i'd love to uh, definitely want to learn about what you're doing specifically definitely so i'm a partner with this pisco brand and um i visited the distillery i met the founder uh, and once again what's the name of it pisco Logia. um so we are here we're exported to the u.s um Oregon and Washington have been our home market for the last six years. Um, So I met these guys and they brought me on as a partner um, because they wanted a bartender's perspective. They wanted to figure out how to get Piscolojia kind of in the hands of bartenders. They're sommeliers, they're uh, distillers, and they're uh, kind of entrepreneur. They're in business. They're not bartenders. So they were really excited to kind of um, all of us were excited to meet each other, and so they brought me on just to kind of preach Pisco. And so that's really the purpose of this trip. That's why I'm up here. Um, there's going to be some future trips to other parts of the world just to kind of like talk about Pisco. But yeah, I was lucky enough to meet them in Lima. Uh, went to their distillery, um, which is about an hour south of Lima. Um, in this awesome green, green valley um, that spe- uh, specializes in, in Pisco grape growing. Um, it's actually the estate of our distiller um, where all of our grapes grow and obviously where we press everything, where we ferment and distill everything is there at her house. Um, and yeah. Well, I tell you what, one thing that I probably need to, to do is have you kind of walk us through Pisco because I think there's a... Uh, probably a listener or two out there is going, what the heck is this Pisco stuff? And I, you know what? I guarantee there's a lot of bartenders who don't even really know what Pisco is. So let's just kind of do a little uh, question and answer. Uh, Cammy, what is Pisco? Okay. So Pisco is a unaged brandy. Um, a Peruvian Pisco uh, would be from Peru. And then the Chilean is uh, from Chile. And how, just can you, uh, just in, 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 in the short span, in, in the short span, listen, can you walk me just through the Pisco making process, just maybe so our guests can visualize what that looks like? Absolutely. So essentially, Pisco's first incarnation is wine. So we, we do all the same process um, as if we were making wine. Um, so we begin with uh, grapes. So for a year, the grapes are tended to, and the grapes that we grow for Pisco are really high in sugar. They make really gross wines. <laughs> um, but 
they're so high in sugar because they're growing along Peru's desert coast, from Lima all the way down to Chile, all along the coast. So the grapes get really big and juicy and very sweet. Um, we harvest them in uh, late February, beginning of March, first two weeks of March, depending on um, what the sugars tell us. And then um, once harvested, we do a traditional foot press in kind of a um, cement press tank. Um, so there's about six or seven of us, less than ten, and some kids, um, and we're all pressing by foot. Um, after that, we have a tiny uh, mechanized press for a secondary press to really get everything out of there. Um, directly from the, the tank, uh, the, the fresh grape juice drops into another cement well that is the um, fermentation, where fermentation begins. And that's where ambient yeast lives from previous uh, fermentations. And um, so in addition to grabbing the ambient yeast, uh, we put what's called a sombrero, which is like a, uh, it's called a sombrero, but it's um, grape skins, kind of like a cap of grape skins to add additional yeast into the process. Um, once fermentation begins there, it's moved to neutral fiberglass tanks, um, where fermentation takes anywhere between seven to 10 days. We've had some take longer and some go faster, so that's an average. Um, once uh, our must is fermented, um, fully fermented, it will go into our 300 liter uh, copper pot still. Um, and there we, we begin distillation around the clock because if not, we've got all these grapes coming in, we've got all these grapes fermenting, we gotta get them distilled. Um, so the really cool thing about Pisco, Peruvian Pisco, is that um, it's a single distillation. So the, the must is high enough in alcohol to give us um, a good starting uh, alcohol percentage so that when it's distilled, it's coming off. Our first, our first uh, stuff off the still is uh, between 60 and 70%. Um, we cut normally about a liter, but it really depends. We're doing it all by taste. Um, and since it's just a single distillation, um, these cuts have to be really careful, right? So Peruvian Pisco has to be between 38 and 46% for it to be Pisco, um, a single distillation, um, and there's no proofing. So everything in a bottle of Peruvian Pisco came directly off the still. So that's really special. There's not other, other spirits really in the world that are like that. Um, yeah, the guidelines, I've always, you know, I've never been down there, but obviously I study the stuff, and when I teach it, yeah, that's, uh, the Peruvian guidelines are tremendously specific, and uh, if you've ever had quality Peruvian Pisco, you know, you know what it gives you is just this bright, beautiful kind of floral flavor profile. So one thing I was going to ask you, it's when I originally learned Pisco, I learned it as a pomace brandy and not unlike grappa is, uh, and, and you mentioned putting the grape uh, skins uh, as a cap or sombrero, uh, you know, as uh, during the fermentation process, is yeah. that what it was? Is, is, do people still consider Pisco a pomace brandy or is it kind of been cleaned up and is more just an unaged brandy? in general, more like an eau de vie? I would definitely say uh, the second, more of an eau de vie. Um, so a grappa, they're not using, obviously the, the grape juice is used first for wine, so it's kind of a secondary kind of um, process with the grapes. 
So Pisco is... Um, it's a primary. They're exactly. not using it as a second. They're no. not just like trying to clean it. You do something with the waste. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. That's great to know. And, uh, and what would you say is the primary difference in regulation between Peru and Chile? Well, in Chile... Um, so first of all, the grapes are different. Um, I'm not sure what Chile has, uh, what they use for grapes for their pisco, but in Peru, you can only use eight uh, varietals. There's four aromatics, four non-aromatics. Um, another difference is that Chile um, does multiple distillations, which is great. Um, but in Peru, it's just a single distillation. Got to jump in there real quick. Uh, that's the end of our third round. We'll be right back for a fourth and final in just a moment. Welcome back to our fourth and final round here on the Liquid Lifestyle on the Radio Northwest Network, where we're talking with Cami Kenna, former Portland bartender who now works in both Peru and uh, in Oaxaca, uh, specifically uh, working professionally uh, and as a partner uh, at a uh, in for a, for a Pisco brand, and that's pretty exciting. But uh, at the end of the third round, we were talking about specifically what makes Peruvian uh, uh, Pisco unique and different from, say, Chilean Pisco. And you mentioned that it comes from four different, uh, eight different types of grapes, four aromatic, four non-aromatic. What the heck does that mean? Right. Um, okay, so four aromatic, um, the four aromatic grapes in Peru are the four white grapes that are used in Pisco. Um, there's Italia, Moscotel, um, Torontel, and Alvia. Um, and they're really bright. They're kind of like on the cooler side of things. They're a little menthol-y, really floral, delicious. Um, the non-aromatics are the four uh, red grapes that you can use for Pisco. And those ones to me are kind of provide like the baseline. Like they're buttery, they're toffee, they're nutty, um, and they're the warm grape. Um, so those what are, are the some products. of the non-aromatic, the names of the non-aromatics? Ah, non-aromatics are Quebranta, Negra Criolla, um, Uvina, and Moyar. Okay, so in the end, it's, it's like not unlike cognac making or all kinds of brandy making. It's like the expert is, you know, taking uh, the vital signs of these different grapes, intertwining them to kind of make the, the the palatial expression that they're they're looking for correct absolutely especially particularly in an acholado which is in peruvian spanish means half breed i think blend is more appropriate um any brand can have two blends so you really want to be particular with your acholados Every brand can also have one of each of the single varietal expressions. So one brand can have 10 different Pisco bottles on the shelf. And we're seeing that a lot more with Encantos coming out with more um, different uh, expressions. And then in 2017, we at Piscologia will be exporting our um, single varietal Quebranta, which is a non-aromatic, and then our Italia, which is one of the aromatics and my favorite. Oh man, that's so good! You just you're living well, aren't you? Yeah. All right, well we're uh, we only got a few minutes left, so I gotta let's let's jump on the imaginary liquid lifestyle uh, hovercraft and jump over to Oaxaca. Yeah. Where the heck is Oaxaca? Oaxaca is in deep southern Mexico. It, it borders um, the state of Chiapas and Guatemala. It's on the Pacific coast. 
and they are known for a very special spirit known as mezcal. Yes. And you are spending time there uh, because of said uh, unique and exciting spirit. Uh, tell me about what it's like to live in Oaxaca and what you're doing there. Oaxaca is lovely. Um, it's very warm. I'm living in the city, directly in the center. Um, I think that it's an incredible hub for culture. Um, and of course, with Mescal, it's really special. So there's people from all over the world that are passing through there, not unlike Cusco, also in Peru. But people are, you know, like coming there for a variety of reasons. There's beautiful weaving, there's really incredible food, the culture, and, and of course, the Mescal. So it's a pretty international place. Um, really warm, um, lovely, and. Yeah, Oaxaca is very special. I've been there once. I'm, I've actually been to the coastal town of Huatulco. Oh, yeah. And, uh, man, I just remember those markets. Oh, I had just such a great plate of mole chicken. How many gallons of mole do you put away a week down there? <laughs> well, when I first got there, a lot. Um, now I've timed out a little bit on mole because it's such a rich dish that you can get tired of it. But I've since moved on to the uh, Oaxacan quesadillas, which are huge with Oaxacan cheese and incredible. Sounds good. So just a quick, <laughs> we got about a minute and a half left. Just a quick, uh, quick notes on mezcal. What do people need to know? Um, that there are an array of producers that are making some really special kind of heritage ingredients. And I think it's important to enjoy them and and also respect them because, um, as we know, agave um, only matures, you know, somewhere between, I mean, with the Blue Weber, it can be five um, at the earliest and then on up to, you know, 30 years for um, one of the Karwinskis in, in Oaxaca. So I think it's enjoy them, but also kind of understand. Respect them. Exactly. And uh, for those who don't know what mezcal is, uh, you want to give them a quick uh, definition? Yeah, mezcal is a distilled agave spirit. So all over Mexico, they distill, um, you know, make an agave distillate. But mezcal owns a denomination of origin in several states in Mexico and primarily in Oaxaca. Um, so it's a lovely spirit. I say the next day is more like a mezcal fever dream. It's never a hangover. A mezcal <laughs> fever dream. I actually think that's a great name for a, for a cocktail. Uh, really? Without a doubt, you can throw that on your list because I know you're also uh, bartending down there. But thank you so much for coming in, Cam. Thank you, Cammy. Ryan. It was my pleasure. It was amazing. Oh, wow. And uh, I know I learned a ton. I hope you did as well. I'm certain you did because I know if I did, you definitely did. But that's, the, that's a wrap for today's show. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, catching you next time.